Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Father, we do thank you, we do praise you, that you are an awesome God, that you have done faithfully your work and i pray father that we would be faithful servants to do our part as well to be faithful stewards father of the things that you have given us father you're an awesome god and uh, we can only ask for your spirit to be here to open our eyes and to challenge us father to see things that uh, maybe we've been blind to in our life help this just to uh, uh rock our world a little bit tonight's study and uh, uh teach us father to be strong for you Father, we praise you and we thank you and we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If uh, you were with us last week, uh, we're going to continue through the exciting drama of uh, what we went through with Elijah. In chapters 18 and 19, we covered it and we, we had a chance kind of to beat on Elijah a little bit and said that he was a man full of spiritual pride. And I don't like to say that because Elijah is a great man of God. And, uh, and yet, you can see a hard edge to him. But what we want to learn is, is, is that Elijah was somebody with a problem. He had a big problem. He was, he, he was facing the dreaded Jezebel. And next week, we're going to go through a story of Jezebel and kind of paints the picture on just how wicked she was. But she definitely hated God. She was somebody that was a thorn in the side to Israel. She was married to King Ahab. And as King Ahab, north uh, of Israel, up to the north up there, she's going to be one of the main reasons that start to drag the whole country down the tubes. Elijah, the man of God, couldn't stand her. And it, it created a huge problem in his life. So much that uh, when he had fire come down from heaven, he had a huge victory that proved to everybody that God, Jehovah God of the Old Testament is, is the one true God, the God of Israel. And this false God, Baal, was not it. He was convinced that this would have thrown her over the edge and she would have been uh, crying and begging for mercy. But in, instead, she, she toughened up. And it caused Elijah, I think, to kind of crash and burn emotionally. And he says, I want to die. I'm no better than my father's. There's no reason for me to go on. I'm the only guy here that cares. And he, he painted this picture that led him down the path of depression and frustration and suicidal, we said. And then God comes back and he wants to encourage him. And uh, he's going to say, you know, you're going to have to be sustained through what I'm giving you. And he fed him the miraculous food and he ran 40 days on this food that the angels gave him. He showed him that he was that still small voice that was speaking in the wind and he wasn't in the fire and the storms and all the heavy, intense things of the earthquakes. He was this God that has a plan and a purpose and we need to be part of that. And yet the, the real problem persisted. And if we're going to go through the next 10 chapters of the Bible, you're going to see how God's going to start to answer Elijah in his problem. Even after he's gone out of this world, God has got to still 
work meticulously, methodically to answer that problem. There's a problem, a big problem, and God sees it and he's starting to work his way through it. You've got to catch that overall picture of the things that are happening. And we said that God's going to give him three specific things to do. You need to go go to the, your, your enemy, go to Aram. The Arameans were the guys up there around Damascus and Syria that were coming into Israel and were attacking. He says, you go and appoint your enemy into a new king. You take this guy, Hazael, and you're going to make him king. That's an interesting for, thing for the prophet of Israel to say, you go and make another guy king of another nation. Then you're going to go up and take your nation and you're going to appoint another king in his place, this guy Jehu. And then he says, you need to go appoint yourself a replacement. And so Elijah hears this and we're going to end this chapter. If you go back to chapter 19, verse 19, he's going to come up and appoint his replacement. This guy, Elisha, whom God uh, uh, picked out and said, that's the man that's going to replace you. So Elijah ja, is going to find Elisha. So I can always remember that, that the ja comes first. And I always think of a ja hard, you know, on your, your chin, you go ja, and that's Elijah. He's the tough guy. He's the first guy. Elisha is the softer guy, and he's going to be a little bit more gentle. So Elijah is going to be replaced by Elisha. Elijah means that Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. That's what Elijah means. Elisha means means Jehovah or Yahweh is salvation. And there's a little bit of a kinder, gentler, open door process. But Elisha is going to be the one that's going to finish the job off. He's going to do the things of getting rid of this wicked wench of Jezebel. And when it all starts to unravel, Elijah and his problem, God is going to answer. And yet Elijah comes up and it says, verse 19, So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shabbat, uh, Shapheth, Shaphat, something like that. Yeah. While he was plowing with twelve uh, pairs of oxen before him. And uh, he with the twelfth. And Elijah passed over to him and he threw his mantle on him. So not the fireplace mantle, but the mantle would be the, the coat, the garment that he would be wearing that would distinguish him as a prophet. So he comes up to him and he throws his jacket at him, right? And so uh, he left Elisha, uh, left the oxen and ran after Elijah. And he said, please let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Elijah goes, ah, go back, go back again for what have I uh, done to you? I don't care about you. Go do whatever you think you want to do. I did what I was supposed to do. So he, Elisha, returned from following him and took the pair of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the implements of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. And then he arose and he followed Elijah and ministered to him. So I find it interesting that the hallmark of Elisha is that he's going to say, wait a second, I got to I got to say my farewells. And before I start any ministry and he's getting the idea that that's exactly what's going to happen. Elijah is saying, here's my coat, here's my mantle, if you would, here's my, my, my 
whatever it would be, this jacket that has this thing that would distinguish him as the man of God. He knows that as Elijah's giving it up, and he's supposed to be filling the roles of the mighty Elijah, and everybody knew who he was at this time. And he says, you want me to fill your shoes, then I need to start this off by saying, thank you, Lord, a sacrifice. I need to say goodbye to my mother and my father. Elijah's like, look, you got to come with me. you got to follow in my footsteps. I ain't got time for this to go say goodbye to Papa stuff. You know what I mean? And uh, you, you need to sit down and, and start working the hard life and follow the path that I have for you. And Elijah says, wait a second. I, I'm going to remember God. I'm going to remember my, 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 my father. And I, you can't help but think of Jesus who said, you know, when he says many people that they come after me and they said, uh, you know, let me follow you. And then they go, oh, let me go back and bury the dead. And Jesus even comes up with a hard line. And he says, ah, tell the dead to bury themselves. You follow me. And at that point, it sounds pretty cruel, doesn't it? Where Jesus is like, let the dead bury the dead. And, and sometimes we have a, a tendency to come up with a lot of excuses, right? Not to follow God. God, I, I would love to be in church every Sunday. I'd love to be following you. I'd love to go forward in the ministry, blah, 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 blah. But I've got this problem. I just can't do it. And Jesus is teaching us to say there's no problems. When you hear the call of God, you need to start marching forward and listen to the voice of God. But also balance that with, wait a second, there's also a time to say if you're going to go into something, there has to be some preparation. Elisha is saying, wait a second, I'm going to go back and kiss my father. I don't have to bury my father like what Jesus was saying. But he says, I'm going to go back and say, I'm going to go forward with the right plan, the right idea. And yet Elijah taking his side of this, he's going to say, look, if you want to follow me, it's a tough road. It's a tough road ahead of you. Elijah was the one that was called by the king, says, you're the troubler of Israel. He was the one that prayed and said, it's not going to rain for three years. And he went and hid and everybody wanted to go seek him so that it would rain again. And he's like, you know, as I stood up, you could hear Elijah saying, look, as I stood up for righteousness, every single thing you could imagine came against me. As I stood there and called down fire from heaven, boy, if you want to walk in my footsteps and boy, if you're the one that God's telling you to walk after me, you better say, this is as good as it gets. Here's the stinking jacket and, I'm, and you're going to follow me. He didn't sit down there and says, well, Elijah, let me tell you what you're in for. You're in for a tough time now. I'm going to put you underneath my wing and I'm going to tell you everything I know. He didn't say any of that. I'm going to disciple you for a while and I'm going to, I'm going to sit down there and, and coddle you and protect you. He says, no, this is what it is. Grab it. <laughs> and sometimes when the Lord comes at us, it's not always pretty. He, he wants to sit down and speak to us and, 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 and I think the Lord would love to say, you know, there's, there's just this rough road and, and we want to go through it one step at a time. Uh, but, but God doesn't. He says, here, I'm throwing you into the fire. I'm going to throw you into the baptism of the fire, as they say, and you're going to get burned in 85 different directions. And you're going to have to start to figure out which end is up quick or else you're going to get fried. And unfortunately, God works that way as well. And uh, he, he takes us. And I don't know why sometimes it happens that way, but we can watch Christians as they hear the voice of the Lord and they get thrown into the fire immediately. And for some strange reason, 
they come to a crossroads immediately in their life and they say, I have to overcome this. I don't know why. Some people are like that. They come up, they're saved a week, and they say, I can't listen to rock and roll. I can't smoke a cigarette anymore. I can't do this anymore. They say, this is the way it's supposed to be. And they recognize that if they continue to do any one thing, that they're going to be destroyed for that one thing. They, they take hold of it, and it's a tough walk, and, it, and it's hard. Other people, you know, uh, they can be saved for a long period of time. It seems like they're on a honeymoon process, and, and everything seems to be just great. But Elijah... And he's saying to Elisha, he says, it's a tough road. You're going to follow me. And you've got a, a lot of things that are going to be happening to you. And so you better start toughening it up. And, uh, and, and Elijah just throws the coat at him. And he says, well, you go back, you do whatever you want to do. And for now, we're going to hear silence from Elijah and Elisha. We're going to now pick up chapter 20 and we're going to see the scene continue in a completely different area. We're going to go back to Ahab and what's going on with the works of Ahab. And, uh, and Ahab is going to be confronted with a problem. Verse, or chapter 20, verse 1, it says, Now Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, right, the region outside of uh, Israel, off to the, what we would call the West Bank on the other side of the Jordan, is now going to be Aram way up to that area over there, north of Gilead, if you would. He says, but uh, this guy, Ben-Hadad, he's the king over this area. And if you would, you're going to hear this term Ben-Hadad quite a bit. And Ben-Hadad is not necessarily a name as much as it is a title. And you're going to see several successions of Ben-Hadad be involved with a long period of time. And you think, gee, this guy's got one long lifespan. And you go, no, it's not the same guy. It's the title of what the, you know, we have presidents and they have Ben-Hadads. But it says, now Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, gathered all of his army. And uh, there were 32 kings with him. That's a, a sizable force. We're going to find out that he's going to have at least 127,000 men with him. 127,000 men. It's a good chunk of men. But there were 32 kings with him and horses and chariots. And he went up and he besieged Samaria, where our famous king Ahab and Jezebel live. And he fought against it. And he sent messengers to the city of Ahab, king of Israel. And he said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Hey, buddy, old pal, how you doing? He says, this is my message to you. Your silver and your gold are mine. Your most beautiful wives and children are also mine. Oh, the king of Israel answered. He said, oh, now I think he's saying, hey, we're all buddies and we're all friends. I think that's the way he's taking it because he's going to say, the king of Israel answered. And he said, it's according to your word, oh, my Lord. Hey, what's yours is mine and what's mine is mine, oh, king. I'm yours and all that I have. Okay, what, what, what's your point? And the messenger returned and he said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, uh, You're not getting my message. I'm not a friendly greeter here. It says, Surely I sent to you, saying, You shall give me your silver and your gold and your wives and your children. But about this time tomorrow I will send my servants to you, and they will search your house and the houses of your servants, and it shall come about that whatever is desirable to your eyes they will take in their hand and carry away. So he's saying, no, I'm serious. I'm going to take everything you got. So I think there was a type of friendship, a type of king to king. We're all buddies and pals here. And the king 
uh, of Aram comes up and he says, I'm taking everything you've got. And the guy goes, well, you know, we're all together. We're all friends. What do you mean by that? And he goes, no, I'm taking everything you got. And the king says, uh, no, that's not what I, I meant. You're not going to have it all. Verse 7, then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land. And he said, please observe and see how this man is looking for trouble. <laughs> this is going to be a serious problem. These are fighting words. For he sent to me for my wives and my children and my silver and my gold. And I did not refuse him like, hey, whatever's mine's yours and yours is mine. But and all the elders and all the people said to him, they said, do not listen or consent. So you tell this guy no deal. So he sent to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, tell my lord the king, all that you sent for uh, to, to the your servant at first I will do. Like, hey, if we're all pals, that's fine. But this thing I cannot do. Like, you're really going to take everything. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. And Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, may the gods do so to me and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. So he's going to say, these are fighting words. We're going to duke it out. I'm coming to take it from you. And this is one of my favorite lines in the Bible. Verse 11 says, then the king of Israel, Ahab comes up and he answers and he says, you tell him this, let not him who girds on his armor boast like him who takes it off. I love that line. And he's saying, look, pal, you want to come out and fight? You're talking all this trash talk out here on the field. You talk that trash at the end of the fight, not before the fight. So you can mouth off to me as much as you want. You're looking for a fight. So you can see how these two guys have escalated it. Say, hey, you want to come in? You want to do whatever? And they go, no, I'm going to take everything. He goes, so you're looking for a fight? You're going to get a fight. And then Haddad comes in and says, I'm going to whoop you, buddy. And he goes, yeah, well, you talk at the end of the day, and we'll see how mouthy you are. I like that line. Let not him who girds on his armor boast like him who takes it off. Doesn't that always kill you when you watch football games and you see these guys talking trash to one another? You know, It's like they've got to prove something with mouthing it off or something. I don't know. Well, the Buckeyes do that a lot. It always embarrasses me. It's like, you know, what are you talking all this trash stuff for on the field? You can see them mouthing off to each other. Say, score the points and shut up, right? Speak, speak what it is. But here it is, the same line. So verse 12, And it came about when Ben-Hadad heard this message, as he was uh, drinking uh, with the kings in the temporary shelters, that he said to his servants, station yourselves. So they stationed themselves against the city. So now they're going to surround the city and they're going to sit down and try and destroy it. So notice verse 13. It says, now behold, a prophet. Who? We don't know. Just some old guy being faithful. It says, now behold, a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, and said, thus says the Lord, have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver them into your hand today and you shall know that I am the Lord. So Samaria looked like you uh, asked for a fight. Now you're surrounded by the enemy and, and this prophet just walks up to the king and says, we're going to win. And I like this. Ahab turns around and goes, oh yeah? Well, by whom? How are you going to do this? What do you mean we're going to win? I want more information than we're going to win. By whom? How is this going to come about? And he said, well, thus says the Lord, by the young men of the rulers of the provinces. So here specifically are going to be a group of people that's going to lead the battle. And so Ahab still not, you know, satisfied. And then he said, well, who shall begin the battle? Well, what's going to happen? What's, how's it going to start off? And he said, you, you're going to go out there and start the battle. 
Now notice, this is Ahab. Ahab is our slouch of a king, married to Jezebel, bringing the country down. A man of God comes up, and he's got to interact with him. He says, I want more information. I want to know what's happening here. And he's listening. He's listening to the voice of God in a certain sense. He's got to be obedient to what has to happen. He says, okay. So what does he do? Verse 15, then he mustered the young men of the rulers of the uh, providences, whoever these were. They were kind of like little governors or whatever it was. And there were 232. A group of 232 men are going to be the leaders. And after them, he mustered all the people, even the sons of Israel. How many? 7,000. So those of us that were with us last week, we scratch our heads and we go, 7,000. Did we hear that number just last week? Yeah, right? Come on, guys. Back up to uh, chapter 19. And in chapter 19, verse at the end, it says, You do these three things, and it shall come about that the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel, Jehu shall put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. What does it say? Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. And so that's a response to Elijah who was whining and complaining and saying, I'm the only guy here that cares. I'm the only guy here that cares. And God turns around and says, no, there's 7,000 people that do care, that have not sat down and fallen into idolatry. You're not the only one. And now all of a sudden, who do we see lined up for battle? 7,000 men. You're going to see 232 princes and 7,000 men are going to march out to battle. They're going to go out and pick a fight. And I'm telling you, there's over 127,000 of the Arameans sitting out there in the battlefield. Now, this is going to take some faith, right? You got, you got what we would know if these are the same 7,000 and assuming that you got 7,000 haven't done it. You got 7,000 men. They're going to have a sweeping victory here. And you're going to say, you're going to watch these guys go out and slaughter these people. It's pretty cool when you see that these are people that are set aside for the Lord and what they can do when they are set aside for the Lord. So it says, verse 16, And they went out to, uh, at noon, while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the temporary shelters with the 32 kings who helped him. So he's a slouch himself. And the young men of the rulers of the providences went out first. So that's the 232 men. They're going to march out as this first point of the spear, if you would. And they're going to go out. And uh, the young men of the rulers, verse 17, of the provinces went out first. And Ben-Hadad sent out and told them, saying, and look at this is how he sees these 232 men marching out of the city. He goes, saying, men have come out from Samaria. And he said, if they've come out for peace, take them alive. And if they come out for war, take them alive. You can see Ben-Hadad's arrogant He's drunk. He thinks no threat whatsoever of these 232 men. So these went out from the city, the young men of the rulers of the provinces and the armies which followed them, and they killed each his man. So 232 men go out and kill another 232 of the Arameans. And at this onset, all of a sudden, it took these guys off guard. It says the Arameans fled. So they go, whoa, there's confusion in the camp. And Israel pursued them. Now the other 7,000 come running out to battle. And it says, And Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, escaped on a horse with horsemen. So all these guys are drunk, confused, stupid. The 7,000 guys are just out there ripping these guys apart, and everybody's running for their life. 
And the king of Israel went out and struck the horse and the chariots and killed the Arameans with a great slaughter. And then the prophet came near to the king of Israel. So this prophet shows back up again. Whoever he is, we don't know. Billy Bob the prophet, right? And he just comes up and he says to the king of Israel, and he said to him, Go, strengthen yourself, and observe and see what you have to do. For at the turn of the year, the king of Aram will come up against you again. So he turns around and says, look, we just had the 7,000 men go out. Everyone was drunk and confused. We're all running around all over the place. And uh, uh, the prophet comes up and he says, what? You guys be careful, all right? Uh, uh, Ahab, you're going to have another battle. These guys are not going to just leave it at this. They're going to come back and they're going to come back with a vengeance. And so it says, uh, verse 23, now the servants of the king of Aram said to him, so now back over the enemy camp, and they're saying, well, why did we get our little fannies kicked out there on the battlefield today? And so their, their reason was their gods are gods of the mountains. That's why. Uh, therefore, they were stronger than we. But rather, let us fight against them in the plains. Yeah, and surely we shall be stronger than they. That, you know, our chariots, we had, we were all mounted up. We, we were ready for a big, you know, out in the fields to fight. We weren't ready for this mountainous terrain. And it's their God. He's the God of the mountains. And do this thing, remove the king, uh, the kings, right? The 32 kings that you had, which were men of, uh, you know, politicians, if you would, uh, each from his place and put captains in their place. So put men of war in your battle places instead of politicians. And muster an army, notice this, like the army that you have lost. So we know that we're going to have 127,000 dead. So there must have had 127,000 at least there before horse for horse and chariot for chariot. And then we will fight against them in the plain and surely we will be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. So it came about at the turn of the year, just like the prophet said, that Ben-Hadad mustered the Arameans and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel out on the plains. And the sons of Israel were mustered and were... Uh, provisioned and uh, and went to meet them so they're prepared for battle and the sons of israel camped before them like two little flocks of goats that's what it looked like but the arameans filled the countryside so here israel is like two little flocks of goats in a sea of enemy then a man of god whoever it is we don't know who it is could be a different guy even billy bob the prophet came near and spoke to the king of israel and said thus says the lord because the Arameans have said, and notice this, that the Lord is the God of the mountains and He is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give this great multitude into your hand and you shall know that I am the Lord. So you can see God's listening to this and He goes, oh, you don't think that I'm the God of the... You think I'm just a, a local God of the mountains and not of the valleys? God's saying I'm the God of all and I'm personally challenged by this and I'm going to whoop on Him. <laughs> So they camped over one against the other seven days. And it came about that on the seventh day, as they're staring at each other, all of a sudden they decided to fight. The battle was joined. And the sons of Israel killed the Arameans, 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. It's a huge slaughter of biblical proportions, right? But the rest fled to Aphek into the city and the wall fell on 27,000 men. So there has to be at least 127,000. The first time and the second time if they were the same uh, battle. 
They're the same men, man for man, horse for horse. So 27,000 men, a wall falls on them and, uh, uh, who were left. And Ben-Hadad fled and came into the city into an inner chamber. So the king himself is now, he's, saying, he's realizing he's lost a, a huge battle and he's running for his life. And so as he's sitting in this room, scared and alone, a couple of his aides come up to him and it says, and it says, his servant said to him, Behold now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Please let us put sackcloth on our loins and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will save your life. So they go, look, we're trapped. We're going down hard. We better beg for mercy. So what do they do? They rip their clothes up, put on sackcloth like they're poor, poor, poor me. They put the little hangman noose on their on their own head and they said, look, um, I, I have nothing else to do here. Just kill me if you want. My life's in your hands. Please, 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 please show mercy. So they come out and uh, go out to the king of Arabs. Perhaps he will save your life. Verse 32. So they girded sackcloth on their loins and put ropes on their heads and came to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Oh, please let me live. So king Ahab sitting down there in the midst of his big victory, he listened to the voice of the Lord and he said, Is he alive? Oh, he's my brother. We're pals. And the men took this as an omen. Oh, wow. Hey, maybe we're going to get off on this. And quickly catching his word said, Whoa, whoa, he's your brother? Your brother, Ben-Hadad, your buddy, old pal. And then he said, Go bring him. And then Ben-Hadad came out to him and took him up into his chariot. So he, being Ahab, turns around, sees this guy and says, Come here, buddy, get up here. Take that rope off your neck. Come on, what's wrong with you? I know you're ready to kill me. You attacked me twice, but he seems stupid enough to ignore that. And so Ben-Hadad starts talking real quick. Starts making some promises. And Ben-Hadad said to him, he says, Oh, you know the cities which my father took from your father? We've been fighting for generations. You know those old cities? Oh, I'll restore them to you. You can have all those back. Thanks for saving me. And, and you shall make streets for yourself in Damascus as my father made in Samaria. So we're going to name some streets after you. We'll have Ahab Road right down the middle. How about that? And Ahab goes, well, that's kind of nice. I get my cities back. Come on, I've whooped on you a couple times. We're all going to be friends now. Everything's fine. So Ahab said, and I will let you go with this, what? Covenant. So he made a covenant covenant with him to let him go so he's going to take ahab or ahab's going to take uh, this guy ben hadad and let him go and then he said to him because you have not listened oh whoa, whoa, whoa. verse 35 now a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to another by the word of the lord he says please strike me so you got two prophets up there one prophet's pretty upset about the whole deal and the two prophets one prophet goes please strike me but the man refused to strike him. So it's like someone comes up to you and says, hey, punch me in the face. You go, hey, dude, I don't punch you in the face. You know what I mean? You know. No, punch me in the face. Right? But he refused to strike him. Then he said to him, because you have not listened to the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have departed from me, this is one prophet speaking to another prophet, a lion will kill you. How's that? <laughs> and as soon as he departed from him, a lion found him and killed him. <laughs> So he goes up to...
the prophet told me to, right? <laughs> Please strike me. And the man struck him, wounding him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way and disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. So he's got to sit down there as he's beaten up there with a, with a bandage over his face and he's got to speak to the king, King Ahab. And as the king passed by, he cried out to the king and he said, Your servant, hey, I've got a story for you. Hey, king, come here, help me. Your servant went out to the, into the midst of the battle and behold, a man turned aside and, and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. For if any reason he's missing, then your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. So, hey, I'm supposed to guard a prisoner. And while well, he got away, and while your servant was busy here and there, I don't know, I turned around, and he's gone. Well, the king of Israel hears the story about what this prophet is saying, and not knowing that he's a prophet, said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. And then... The guy turns around, rips the bandage off, and then he hastily took the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him. He goes, oh, man, this is a little skit, a little scheme to bust me. And the king of Israel recognized him that he was of the prophets. And he said to him, thus says the Lord, because you let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. So the king of Israel went to his house, sullen and vexed, and came to Samaria. You're watching, if you would, a whole scene start to unravel. And I like it. There's a couple things that you need to see that's going to happen. Understand, first and foremost, that this was a problem in Elijah's life. Elijah had a problem with Jezebel. And I like this. All of a sudden, God starts to do certain things totally on the side, a little over here in the middle of nothing. Elijah wasn't doing anything with the whole picture. God's going to start to do a whole work over here with the king, and he's starting to speak to the king, and he wants to convict and to condemn the king to get rid of this guy so Elijah could be rid of this woman Jezebel. And God starts to do a work completely away from everything. And he says, let's, let's send this guy out to battle. Let's give this guy, Ahab, a, a little bit of victory. Let's show him that I'm involved and I'm working and that I'm able to send 7,000 men to go kill 127,000 men. We're going to do something totally miraculous so that Ahab over here recognizes that God is true. He turns around, he has his enemy in his clutches, and he says, this is what I want you to do, get rid of this guy. And notice what Ahab does. He turns around. It's his nature, it's character, it's coming out of him. He says, I don't care about the victory. You're going to name some streets after me. He's going to be filled up with pride. He's going to let this thing go. And God's saying, I told you not to let this guy go. You should have put this guy to death. That's what should have happened. You should have had this king. You should have pulled out your sword, ripped off his head, and put the old man down. And because you failed to do that, you're lining yourself up for judgment and you're setting the cards up in place, Ahab, so that God can do the eventual thing of getting rid of Jezebel and Ahab. And you're going to find, if we get to chapter 23, or chapter 22, I think, there's another couple chapters down the line, you're going to find out that Ahab is going to die in battle because the Arameans are going to sit down and wound him in battle because he has to go out and get these 20 cities back that was never given to him. So 
Ben-Hadad says, thanks for letting me go. Na, 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 na. I'll keep my 20 cities. We'll see this in another couple chapters. And you're going to see that Ahab plays the fool. He got tricked. And as he goes out to battle, haphazardly an arrow goes into him, hits him in the armor, and he's going to die in his chariot. And Ahab, you played the fool. If you would have killed the guy in the first place, if you would have taken the victory that was given to you, if you would have stood up and done the right thing instead of being compassionate, kind, that you could almost read that. You should have done what you were supposed to do. Now, now back up a little bit and put yourself in, in, in Ahab's shoes. Right? What, what, what do you expect him to do with this guy? He goes, look, man, I just I, I, I whooped his fanny out on the battlefield through the mountains. The guy comes back to me the next year, and I whoop him again out in, out in the plains. I got this guy shellacked. Now, Shouldn't I sit down there and, and make peace with the guy? Let him go back over to the other side? Shouldn't it just turn to be nice? Can't I be nice? Uh, there's, a, there's a side of Ahab that I can relate to to say, you're right. You know, look, you got the guy. He's begging for mercy. He's going to give us back the kingdom. He's been a thorn in the side. He picked a fight with me. I shellacked him. How, you know, I, I got him down on the ground. He's saying, uncle, right? Can I let him up and say, now get out of here? He, he was begging for mercy. And yet the Lord's coming up and he's saying, no, 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 no. This is very serious. What's going on in your life, Ahab? And the problem with Ahab is that he tolerated sin. That's his whole problem. He's allowing the worship of Baal, the false god, this little, you know, bull, you know, that's there that is supposed to be the fertility god. He's saying, hey, I recognize, can you put yourself in Ahab's shoes? He's going, I recognize the God Jehovah, and I also just happen to recognize Baal. We got some Baal worship, we got some Jehovah worship, we got them both. Now, you know, when, when Jehovah comes up and tells me to send out my 330, or 232 men and my 7,000 men after him, I did just what God told me to do. And I got results, so God obviously has got to find some favor with me, right? And now all of a sudden the prophet comes up and is going to bust my chops because I didn't go up and kill the guy? And that's the very message God wants to get across. He wants to sit down and says, no, wait a second. Sounds ruthless. It sounds cruel. But there are things in your life that you would perceive to be innocent and kind and compassion that God would look at in your life and say, you need to be harder, stricter, and sterner in this area. You need to put your foot down. You need to kill this thing. This thing is a disease. It is poison creeping into your life. And you better have ripped off his head. It wasn't a time to be compassionate. Wow. Now, if you were with us last week and you're a good boys and girls, you saw that uh, we had, uh, last week we had Elijah. And we said Elijah was a man full of spiritual pride. Now, we're looking at two radically different extremes here. Last week's sermon, if you're on Wednesday night, it was saying, dude, you better be careful. You're full of pride. You puff yourself up. And if you bite off more than you chew, you're going to come down hard and you're going to get depressed and cry like a little baby because it's not going your way. Spiritual pride kills us. This week's sermon, it's 
completely opposite direction. And he's saying, if you're not tough enough, if you're not strong enough, and if you're not going to go the distance when God's given something into your hands, you're going to miss the blessings of the Lord because there are things in your life. And if you notice, there's two radical extreme messages between last week with Elijah in his spiritual pride, this week in Ahab, who was too much of a, of a, a sympathetic, too much of a nice guy, and really what he was, he was too... Uh, uh, apathetic. He was too. He was filled with apathy. He didn't care. He didn't want to finish the job. He didn't go the extra mile to do what was required, only to have it come back. And somewhere in our lives, this is the key. There is a balance between the two. There are times in our life that we should be a little bit gentler and not so full of pride as as the tough guy Elijah. We don't need to go up and throw our coat at somebody and say, "Look, you want to be a Christian." Get on your knees and get saved right now. If you don't do that, I ain't got time for you. That's not how you lead people to the Lord. You know, you could. Get saved or else. And on the other hand, we're just as wrong if we coddle and say, Oh, well, we'll give you plenty of time to think about if you want Jesus. And if you really want Jesus, then, you know, you can pray about it. And if you don't, well, that's okay. Well, there's heaven and hell on the line, and you're going to burn in hell if you don't have Jesus Christ as your King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I can't, you know, candy coat that any other way. There are things in our life that are poisonous that God comes up to us and says, you've got to kill that poison. It's not tolerated. There are things in our life that we have to say it's wrong, it's wicked, it's sin. And when God comes up to us and says, put an end to it, you've got to put an end to it. And we, we suffer greatly if we don't. And here's Ahab, the very thing that he let go is what's going to strangle him and kill him. Just like King Saul, King Saul was told to go out and to kill the Amalekites. And who was the one that ripped off his crown, chopped him in the head and gave the crown to David was an Amalekite. And you go, Saul, if you would have been faithful to kill the Amalekites, you wouldn't have an Amalekite cutting your head off at the end of the scene. And in our lives, God wants to speak to us, minister to us, and He says there's some things that are just not right. And we have a tendency in our lives to look at certain things, and what do we like to do? We like to whitewash them. We like to... We like to clean up everything and say it's not a problem when God is saying it's a problem. And I love that term whitewash. Jesus uses it in Matthew 23. And he says, you hypocrites, you're whitewashed tombs. That's what you are. He's speaking to the Pharisees who, who thought that they were so spiritual. And he called them a whitewashed tomb. Now, in Jesus' day, uh, that was a vulgar term. <laughs> That, that was a fighting term. You don't call anybody a whitewashed tomb because uh, is what he's saying. He's saying, you know, you look real good on the outside, but inside there's dead man's bones. You're rotting on the outside. You're, you're, you, 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 you're death on the inside, but outside you look good. And inside of our lives, there's a lot of things that look real good. We want them to be good, and we want to turn around and, and, and ignore the things that God's told us to say that this is poison, get rid of it. And we want to say, no, this isn't poison. I want to, I want to whitewash it. I want to paint it. I want it to look good. I want to forget about it. I want to ignore this area in my life. And God says, you can't. You can't or it's going to come back and kill you. Stomp it out. We have the old man. 
We have the flesh, the carnal flesh, the carnal side of us. It's who we are. Everyone loves themselves, right? We don't want to hurt ourselves. We cherish ourselves. We look at our old man and we say, oh, it's such a beautiful me. I want to take care of me. It's amazing on how we can talk ourselves into protecting ourselves, loving ourselves, and saying, what's going to be good for me? And in the meantime, Romans chapter 6 turns around and says, you've got to put the old man down. You've got to die. You have to account it and reckon it as dead. You have to kill that old man. The old man's dead in baptism. And you've got to let go of everything in the flesh. And that's our struggle every day. We look at our flesh and we always want to whitewash it. We want to say it's not that bad. We want to sit down and say, I can live with this. I can make it happen. And God says, no, 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 that's not the way it works. I got, uh, I got four kids and we bought uh, a new home. And in the new house, there's all white walls all over the place. And I think we were there for, you know, three months with our beautiful little home. And after three months, you could see fingerprints all about this high, all up and down the stairs, you know, all around these little edges of every little wall. And it starts to be this brown, nasty little stuff. And the paint that they put in our house was, you know, it was kind of cheap paint. And it was a, a an off-white flat, you know, and you can't wash it, you know. You just You just look at it and you just scrub it. And it's not that nice, expensive paint that's washable. And so, you know, I could sit down and scrub and scrub and scrub or, you know, I just buy a couple gallons of paint and all I do is I take the roller out and I just roll up and down all the crayon marks and all this and about every three to six months I whitewash the house. I just go, <laughs> and go look, brand new house, you know. I'm not going to spend forever washing this thing. I'm not going to try and do it. Throw a few bucks worth of paint on that thing and it takes me about a half hour to do all the stairwells and all this stuff and hit a few doors and all the dents and look, it's all gone miraculously. I whitewashed it. What did I do? Did I get the dirt off? No. I covered it. <laughs> and just throw a few coats on that thing and you whitewash it. And what we have a tendency to do is we have a tendency to whitewash things. We have a tendency to slap a coat of paint over something and leave the dirt there. And what the Lord wants to do in our life, and He says, no, 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 I don't whitewash things. I want to sit down there and I want to remove the dirt. I want to cleanse it. I want to separate it. I want to cut it out and get rid of it. So what's left there is what's pure and true and holy. And inside of our lives, we have a tendency to see sin and we have a tendency to whitewash it. We have a tendency to come up with excuses, with reasons, with whatever we want. And we say, let's just throw a nice coat of white paint over everything. We won't remove the dirt. We won't really, and this is the key word, repent. We won't be broken. We won't come to an end. We won't put the old man to death. We won't kill Ben-Hadad. We let him go. Oh, he made me a good promise. It sounded like the good thing to do. It sounded like, you know, that's what I really wanted. I already proved to him that I could beat the old man. I proved that this was the best way to go. Only to have that dirt come back, creep into our lives and kill us. And God sometimes comes up to us, and it's a balance there to sit down and to say, Lord, I've got to put this down. I've got to kill it. And I've got to balance that with Elijah who says, now, you know, you don't want to be uh, uh, filled with spiritual pride. You don't have to run around and kill everything. But when the Lord comes up and he's speaking to you, and I think with Ahab, you can at least say, you know, you went out there with 7,000 men. You killed 127,000. You can understand that God is speaking to you. You've got prophets working involved in your life. You have to sit down and say, Lord, now this is very serious. 
this man is here to destroy me. Did you hear the first thing? Hey, we're all buddies. We're all friends. Here's Ahab saying, hey, come on. What's mine is yours. What's yours is mine. Aren't we all friends, Ben-Hadad? See how deceived he was? Ben-Hadad says, yeah, watch this, pal. I'm coming after your throat. I'm going to take your gold, your silver, your wives. I'm serious. I'm going to rip you to shreds. Ben-Hadad was no kind, gentle person, was he? He was ruthless. And I'm amazed at how we as Christians can see an enemy that is ruthless, that wants to destroy us and kill us and rip our heads off. And we dance with the devil so many times. We just want to play a game. Sin, you know, hey, you know, I can beat it. I can take it or lose it, you know. You know, I, I can go out and sin for a while and I can walk away from sin. See, I've beaten sin a whole bunch. It deceives us. It puffs us up. We think that we can play with it. And God's like, you can't play with this. There's one way to deal with it, and that's through the cross of Jesus Christ, of taking your life and crucifying your life and giving it over to Jesus Christ and to say, we're going to get rid of this thing. And there are times in your life where you have to stand up and say, it's time for me to make a stand. It's time for me to, to say, Lord, I'm putting my foot down. This is not going to be this way. I'm living for you from this day forward, and I see sin, and I want to get rid of it. God God is not laughing sometimes at the things that we play with. And as he's coming into Ahab and he's saying, Ahab, your wife Jezebel makes me sick. Your playing with Baal is disgusting. I'm God. And I'll show it to you. I'm the God of the valleys. I'm the God of the mountains. I'm above all this. And what else do I have to do to prove it to you? And if I've done all this to prove it to you and you still laugh it off, you're left with nothing besides destruction. And a key, a key for us to deal with a problem. Go back to Elijah. He had a problem. One of the first keys that we're going to have to learn is to say sometimes we have to be very determined in what we're going to live for and what we're going to die for. And we have to be able to sit down and say, Lord, if I'm facing a serious problem in my life, the crisis of the century, uh, it begins to be a time for us to say, Lord, I'm standing up for you. I'm going to put to death the old man and I'm not going to toy with sin. I'm not going to flirt with disaster. I'm not going to play with something which I know is so destructive. And for me, I've been in that situation too many times. God just comes up, he taps me on the shoulder and he says, Dave, you've got to get rid of this. And I'm amazed if you get inside my brain and you start to hear all the excuses that start to come out. Well, this is okay and this is why I'm doing that and I have all these reasons and everything's like this. And God tells me, he says, Dave, you're whitewashing. I said it's sin, it's ugly, kill it. And it's only at that point when you're going to sit down and say, Lord, I'm going to put the old man down, I'm going to die to myself, I'm going to live for you, that I start to have victory over some of my areas that I'm in. Now balance that with spiritual pride. But God is speaking and he says, I want to work in your life. And through the whole pages of what's being said here, God is saying, I've got a solution. I've got a solution. I've got a solution. And I like this. God starts to even work. This is even outside of Elijah, even outside of the things that he's doing. God's coming in. He's starting to move. He's starting to change. And sometimes in our life, God, we, we pray, Lord, give me deliverance over this. And we say, I see no end on how I can do this, but God, give me deliverance. And God comes over to another area and he starts working. He starts moving and he starts changing things in your life. And pretty soon, God's going to start to bring about a victory. And this is what's going to bring down Jezebel. Amen? Amen. Next week we can look at uh, just what Jezebel does that's so wicked. And it's an important chapter. 
uh, I think it's one of the most important chapters of the whole Bible. Chapter 21, 1 Kings. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you, Father, for being an awesome God. And we do want to listen to your voice. We want to be obedient to that voice, Father. And we want your mercies to be new and fresh every morning, Father. Uh, we love you. And uh, we want to draw into a personal relationship, Father. And I pray that we would not fall into a mold, into a pattern, uh, into a technique, Father, that uh, we think we have you down pat. Uh, because it falls into another form of that spiritual pride, Father, that we can be... Uh, able to walk away from you and lose you. And Father, Israel left you. And uh, they were so blind to be in the midst of Baal worship, and yet they thought that they were justified in, in your sight. Father, help us not to be blind. Help us not to whitewash our sins, Father. Help us not to uh, uh, live in the midst of denial. Father, we want to uh, serve you. And uh, if you're speaking to us tonight, Father, I pray that we would put an end to our, our struggles, Father, by being... Uh, uh, willing to follow up, Father, on the things that you're telling us to do. If there's something we need to give up or something we need to start or something we need to do, uh, I pray that tonight we'd walk out here and start to do them or stop them or whatever it is, Father, that you're laying on our hearts right now. Father, you're a loving, awesome God, and we thank you, Father, and we would have no other place than to be in the shelter of your wings, Father. We thank you that you are more than able to provide and to eliminate the enemies, Father, with uh, cunning accuracy as you can destroy, Father. You're powerful. And I pray, Father, that we would trust in you and your strength at all times and not in our own strength, in our own glory. Father, we love you and we praise you and we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.